avoiding human conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we round out this year's coverage of the events of September the 11th. Never forget 9-11 and the 20-year War on Terror. On today's Project Censored Show, we continue to share excerpts from a program sponsored by Code Pink and many other organizations, including Project Censored, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's Project Censored Show, we continue to share excerpts from a program sponsored by Code Pink and many other organizations, including Project Censored, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. This week, we're going to share talks from Pat Alviso and Mary Ladke with Military Family Speak Out. Also, former CIA analysts John Kiriako and Ray McGovern join the program. Scholars Vijay Prasad and others are the voices that you'll hear today on the Project Censored Show. First, we'll hear remarks from Emily Dorrell of Code Pink, who opened the event. Hi, everyone. My name is Emily Dorrell, and I'm with Code Pink. Um, wanted to give a big shout out to Mass Peace Action and for all their incredible help. We love working with you. Reflecting on the last 20 years and what we hope to get out of today is to remember that war is never the answer. When faced with death and tragedy and collective grief, causing more suffering for others will never heal us and will never give us more peace. It's no secret now that we were lied to. We were lied to about weapons of mass destruction and terrorism, drone strikes, all in order to manufacture our consent for war. 20 years ago may feel like a long time, but the liars and the war profiteers are still here and some of them still make policy. So if we are to recognize that people in power are willing to lie to us and to international bodies in order to go to war, we must continue to think critically about how the United States discusses its so-called enemies so that history does not repeat itself. We hope this list of amazing speakers today will help us remember what happened in the wake of 9-11 and what has occurred over the last 20 years and what we can learn from all of it. So our first speaker today is John Kiriakou. John is an author and a brave whistleblower who confirmed that the CIA was torturing people accused of being terrorists following the 9-11 attacks. John, take it away. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for inviting me. I want to talk just a little bit about the actual date of September 11th, 2001. I was at CIA headquarters like so many thousands of other people were. And the one thing that sticks in my head from that day was thinking about Al-Qaeda. My God, do you have any idea what you've done? Do you have any idea how many innocent people are going to be killed now because of this. I mean, certainly I knew what my government was capable of doing. I just assumed that others knew what the American government was capable of doing too. We would enter into what turned out to be a permanent wartime economy. I think that something even worse than that, 
that came out of September 11th was the number of precedents that we sent that made it okay to kill innocent people. It was okay to develop a drone program. It was okay for the military to cross borders and indiscriminately drop bombs or fire rockets. And then when we kill entire families at weddings or funerals, just say, well, there was a terrorist there. We knew what we were doing. Take our word for it. If you could see the intelligence that we have, you would know that we did the right thing. Well, I saw the intelligence that they had and it was all a lie. It was all made up. The problem with that, besides the obvious, is that many Americans believe those lies and now 20 years later, continue to believe those lies. We've gone from the hunt for Al Qaeda, the hunt for bin Laden, to the hunt for Saddam Hussein, to the hunt for ISIS. And now there's this group, ISIS-K in Afghanistan. And when we send drones to blow up the leadership of ISIS-K and then kill an entire family, including seven children, five of whom were under the age of five, we're again told, take our word for it. We know what we're doing. There were terrorists there. We can't. If the rest of the country didn't learn its lesson after 9-11, at least we've learned our lesson. Because everything that they tell us is a lie. They tell us that they're weapons of mass destruction. That was a lie. They tell us that there are no secret prisons. That was a lie. They tell us that there was no torture program. That was a lie. So why should we believe anything they say? We have to question everything. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. It doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or a Republican. They're all guilty of the same thing. So it's up to us to keep up the fight. We can't let these last 20 years go for naught. We have to make sure that people understand that there are Americans like us who stand for peace and justice, that we will fight against these unnecessary illegal wars. We will stand up for human rights and civil rights and civil liberties, and we will not give up. Thanks to everybody. Next, I'm going to introduce two of our guests at once. We are having Pat Alviso, and she is the national coordinator of MFSO, Military Families Speak Out. And Mary Latke, she has served on the Administration Committee for United for Peace and Justice since 2012. Both Pat and Mary have been longtime leaders in MFSO and have sons who were deployed in Afghanistan. Pat and then Mary, thank you. Thank you, Massachusetts Peace Action and Code Pink and everybody that's joining us today. We are very thankful to all of you for planning this event on this important day and for inviting us to join you. For those of you that don't know us, Military Families Speak Out has been around since 2002. We are a national organization of families that have had loved ones in the military since 9-11 or still have. There are about 4,000 of us across the US and Mexico. And most importantly, we support our troops. We want them home now. We work hard every day to make sure that they are taken care of when they get home. If you'd like more information about us, we'll put it in the chat. You can find us at mfso.org. 
Today, we're here to talk about the human cost of war and specifically because who we are, military families and those troops. Military families in the US, Afghanistan and Iraq have all been devastated by these wars. And I just can't adequately explain or describe how isolated and anxious the families of those of our troops that were exiting Afghanistan are feeling right now. Because of course their loved ones aren't really coming home but are still in harm's way and most likely will not be coming home but redeployed somewhere else in the Middle East until their time is up. But after 20 years of broken promises and after a pretty harrowing intense final days during the withdrawal, we can finally say we are out of Afghanistan at least. Now at last the process of healing can begin for those that served in Afghanistan but for military families like us, our work is just beginning. So while the blame game and endless chatter about how the war was conducted still goes on, these past two weeks for our troops, what they've been going through has been a special kind of hell. It has triggered them, even those who have been speaking out against the war for quite some time, they're still asking themselves, themselves what was it all for? So we ask everyone to take this moment and think about the troops. They've been coming home for a while now, but the finality of all of them out of Afghanistan is hitting them pretty hard, especially today on 9-11. Right now, my son can't even talk about it. He's been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan six times, and he struggles every day with the signature wounds of these wars, the traumatic brain injury, PTSD, of course, and a hearing loss that he will carry with him the rest of his life. The worst of it for our family and so many others is seeing this once fresh-faced teenager straight out of high school turn into the passive shell of the person he was never meant to be. Before his first deployment, he packed soccer balls and candy, hoping he'd be able to play soccer with the kids there. And, and instead he returned like so many others, completely demoralized because he ended up knocking down the doors to the homes of terrorized families, mostly women and children. Over 30,100 active duty troops and veterans died by suicide while or after serving in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other fronts since 2001. That's more than four times the number who've died in combat. So our families, of course, are scared every day that our sons and daughters will be in that statistic. It's for that reason that MFSO is starting a yellow ribbon campaign to find ways to build public awareness, even amongst the peace community, that we need to lift the spirits of our returning troops. After all, it wasn't the troops' decision or responsibility to decide on how the war was conducted or to stay there for 20 years. It was the politicians and the Pentagon who decided that. Really, we have no idea what our troops are going through right now. They lived it and it was a nightmare. We need to publicly reach out, listen and validate their truth without judgment and be that warm place that we want them home safe and for good. In the difficult months again, we ask you to reach out to our returning troops yourselves and help put an end to the national disgrace of 17 suicides a day. Of course, we have so much more to do to make sure endless work never happens again as Mary is about to point out next. So we invite you to also help military families speak out, join our campaign to help put an end to the authorization for the use of military force, the AUMF. Now, Mary. 
Thanks, Pat. I'm Mary Ladke, and I'm comforted in being around so many good people on this 9-11 anniversary. Even though my talk will focus on our military in Afghanistan, I can't forget the devastating loss and suffering of 9-11 families, first responders, their families, and all the victims of war. My son, Ryan, was an Army infantry officer who served 13 months at the height of President Obama's Afghanistan surge in Sari District, Kandahar Province, considered the spiritual home of the Taliban. When my son would ask his men, why are you here? The typical response was, I needed a job, not I'm fighting for democracy and freedom. They were doing a job, but soon found out that job was less than honorable. There are no illusions after boots hit the ground in a place like Afghanistan. So much death and destruction with, which can't be justified. My son fought in a war that could never be won based on governmental and military lies. His unit was under attack daily. Ryan is just one of hundreds of thousands of Americans who've had their lives forever changed by this pointless and tragic war. On Ryan's mid-deployment leave, there was a major network reporting from his base talking about great progress. My son simply said, that's a lie. The Taliban fully controlled the area and the people and walked out of the room. You can't fool the troops with media spin because they have lived it. Ryan also wears a metal bracelet, one that he never removes, remembering Jesse, a soldier in his unit killed in action August 25th, 2011. Jesse was 20. His father was informed of his death while serving in Iraq. Our troops gave their lives, limbs, and emotional well-being for this futile 20-year war. The Afghan people have suffered even more. Their country has been destroyed. Life in Afghanistan has been and will be for a long time a living hell. One of the ever-changing missions we waged in Afghanistan intended to win over the hearts and minds of the Afghan people. While the words that we spoke may have promised a hopeful, cooperative future, our bombs, drones, and night raids drowned out those words. Our commitment to violence buried Afghan hearts and minds beneath paralyzing fear and the crushing emotions of human pain. In reality, it is Americans' hearts and minds that need to change. And until we get that, until we reflect upon our mistakes, until we seek to understand and value the humanity of others, until we reassess our foreign policy and choose to solve conflicts through diplomacy and negotiations instead of domination and violence, nothing will change. Our duty now is to tell the true story of this war, finding a way to hold those in charge accountable. We cannot allow the story of the Afghanistan war to be whitewashed, to be told as anything less than a lesson, a devastating loss, an international tragedy that could have been avoided. We must never again send troops to fight illegal and immoral wars. Thank you for your service will never erase or be enough for what has been lost. We must ensure those who served receive appropriate medical care. Military families are just some of the many unheard voices of war. Thank you for the opportunity to be heard. Thank you. Next, we're going to hear a video sent to us by Professor Vijay Prashad, an historian, journalist, commentator, and intellectual. He is executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and the chief editor of Left Word. 
I'm very grateful to join Code Pink on this day, 20th anniversary of the attacks on September 11th on the United States, several targets in the United States. I'm pleased to join Code Pink because after the attacks took place, which killed you know over 3,000 people, a terrible tragedy for many people, you know, working class people in New York City, people who are cleaning the buildings and so on. In the aftermath of that, the United States government began to prosecute at least two wars, a war on Afghanistan and then a few years later, a war on Iraq. And Code Pink, of course, stood firmly against both of those catastrophic wars, two wars, incidentally, which the United States, by all measures, lost. The United States was ejected from Iraq in 2011 when the Iraqi parliament refused to allow U.S. troops extra legal permission to operate in Iraq. Of course, the United States remains in northern Iraq under the jurisdiction of the Kurdish autonomous authorities. But by and large, the United States was kicked out of Iraq. And then in August of 2021, the United States had to precipitously withdraw as Taliban forces uh, gathered and then returned into Kabul. Two wars which few in the early years, days, were willing to take a stand against. Uh, Code Pink emerged uh, as a force to take a stand against them. Thinking about this day, September 11, 20 years later, a difficult attack by 19 men, mostly Saudi men, trained by Al-Qaeda, you know, that uh, hijacked four planes. Two of them went into buildings in the World Trade Center. One hit the Pentagon. Third, by the courage of people on board the flight, was brought down in Pennsylvania and so on. We commemorate that day when there was this attack on the United States, an attack which provoked some soul searching in the immediate aftermath. People wrote cover stories of two kinds. The immediate cover story that emerged was, we're all American, you know, nous sommes American, as the French papers put it and so on. Solidarity with the United States and so on. The second introspection, deeper perhaps, came from even mainstream outlets like Time magazine asking a fundamental question. And the question was phrased in this blunt way, by the way. It's a very blunt framing. They asked, why do they hate us? Why do they hate us? Was the question asked. Why do they hate us? Well, today we might say, well, you know, if you're going to be doing drone attacks and kill entire families and so on, there's a lot of resentment and anger and you can say, of course, yes, you're going to push economic policies of austerity where families can't get access to vaccines, intellectual property right policies, they can't get access to the COVID vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, which by all accounts is a very good vaccine. That's perhaps why people resent the United States and so on. But fundamentally, friends, the answer that didn't come in any of these stories, why do they hate us, was the truth. The truth, for instance, is that the United States did not, after 9-11, enter Afghanistan for 20 years. And therefore, this is a 20-year war that's ended. The United States has been at war with the Afghan people since the 1950s, when the U.S. government has collaborated with far-right sections in Afghanistan to undermine the process of humanization of Afghan society and statecraft, modernization of the state institutions, 
something that was driven by liberals within the monarchy, including Muhammad Daud. Afghanistan had several constitutions, the first important one under King Amanullah and Queen Soraya in 1920s, going up to the constitution of 1964, very far-sighted constitution. United States undermining the influence of the Soviet Union right from the 1950s. In 1953, the Soviets paved the roads in Kabul, that kind of influence. The U.S. government has tried to undermine it. And strikingly, in the 1960s, the U.S. government made an alliance and into the 70s with really horrible people. Burhanuddin Rabbani, for instance, the founder of the Jamaat-e-Islami, a group inside uh, University of Kabul recruited students like Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, Ahmad Shah Masood, and so on. People of real virulence and violence against the population. The U.S. weaponized them, made them powerful, imposed them on Afghan society. It's a very long period of disparagement of the Afghan people's right to create a dignified society into the future. The Taliban is merely a product of the alliance with Burhanuddin Rabbani in the 1960s. September 11th, it's not just 9-11 in 2001. Of course, it refers as well to September 11th, 1973, when the United States imposed a coup colluded with General Augusto Pinochet to overthrow the legitimate government, popular unity government led by Salvador Allende. United States imposed great suffering, imposed terrorism on the people of Chile, the killing of Victor Jara, the killing of thousands of students. That was also September 11th. The September 11th, a terrorist attack where the United States colluded with the Chilean military against the people of Chile. It's a terrorist attack we should also talk about on this day. September 11th, 1906, the other important September 11th. In Johannesburg, South Africa, in front of a hall filled with about 3,000 people of Indian descent, Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, before he became Mahatma Gandhi, opened a struggle against the racist policies of South African government at the time, 1906, September 11th. He coined the term in public satyagraha, action on the basis of truth. Three September 11ths. Two of them, terror imposed upon people, the people of the United States, 9-11, which then the U.S. takes to the people of Afghanistan, imposes terror on them. September 11th, 1973, terror imposed on the people of Chile by the United States government. And then September 11th, 1906, when people, decent people, fight back in order to create decency. Can we commemorate September 11th, 2021, make the pledge of action on the basis of truth to prevent these kind of terrible wars, these terrible coup d'etats that bring suffering upon people? Thanks a lot. Everybody talking about this war and that war. Who's for and not for? The last war, the next war, and nuclear is not for. And what for? Damn love for. Childish man. Rubbish. This is the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're listening to excerpts from an online seminar presented by Code Pink, Massachusetts Peace Action, Project Censored, 
and nine other organizations. This took place this past September 11th, 20 years to the day after September 11th attacks. Stay tuned as we continue excerpts from that program. Jewish and Aramish, Irish and Catholic, militant and immigrant. Up next, I would like to introduce Mustafa Bayoumi. Dr. Mustafa is a professor at Brooklyn College. He is the author of How Does It Feel to Be a Problem? Being Young and Arab in America, which traces the experiences of seven young Arab Americans navigating life in post-September 11th environment, where complicated public perceptions of the attacks gave birth to new brands of stereotypes fueling widespread discrimination. He's also the author of This American Muslim Life, which discusses surveillance and profiling during the war on terror. Thank you, Emily. And really a big thanks to everybody who is involved in organizing this today and for inviting me. It's really an honor to be here on such a day. This is a difficult day for me. I live in New York City. I was in New York City 20 years ago. I remember it like it was yesterday. In fact, the last 20 years in this terrible way feel like they have been just one long day, uh, a day full of grieving, a day full of misery, a day full of endless warfare, as we've been hearing about, and also a day, I think, of hope and lost hope. And I think I want to talk a little bit about that today. One of the things that struck me, having lived through the experience of being in New York City at the time, I mean, millions of people were like that too, but I think it's kind of been forgotten what New York City felt like during the attack. For one thing, there were the sensory emotions, for, for sure. There was a smell in the air. There was the, the visual markers. The, you could see the plumes of smoke from the attacks. It was very, very powerful. And it was very, very sad. The whole city was enveloped in a kind of collective sadness that meant that it was a, it was a, a movement towards working for a better world. There was, in fact, in, in my recollection, in the very early days following the attacks of 9-11, unlike the rest of the nation, in New York City, there was no appetite, generally speaking, for war. And there was something really powerful about those first few days. Unfortunately, they didn't last very long. And what happened is something that we've been hearing about that's everywhere from the run-up to the war in Afghanistan, I recall very clearly when George W. Bush came and spoke like a sheriff at the World Trade Center site and promised vengeance, just as I remember the run-up to the war in Iraq. And from all of those events, whether it's the attacks from 9-11, the run-up to the war in Afghanistan, the run-up to the war in Iraq, until today, what we've seen is elevated hostility and a lot of hate that has been directed towards Arab Americans, towards Muslim Americans, and towards all kinds of people who are presumed to be Arab or Muslim. And one way of thinking about it is that we've, we've encountered two kinds of hatred, two kinds of hostility, our communities. One, I would say, are hate crimes from the general public. The other, I would say, are state crimes from the government itself. And right after 9-11, we actually had a slew of both. There was some in New York City as well, but certainly that was also the case nationwide. Hate crimes soared 1,800% in the first six months following 9-11. But also less attention has been paid, generally speaking, I think, to the state crimes 
especially from that same period. There were these massive sweep arrests that immediately followed 9-11. I don't know if anybody recalls, but then Attorney General John Ashcroft used to get up in front of the TV and say, today we arrested 762 possible terrorists. And the assumption between being a, an immigrant, especially a brown immigrant, especially a brown immigrant from a Muslim country, and being a terrorist was cemented in the public's imagination by these kinds of state crimes. And then, of course, we had things like the special registration program. We had all kinds of ways in which spies and informants from different levels of law enforcement agencies infiltrated into the Muslim American communities around the country. All of these things reflected back in TV programs. And then the public consciousness is formed by both elements of the TV programs and by what the government is doing. It illustrates this feedback loop of this dangerous sense of hatred and othering that a lot of Arabs and Muslims have had to live through since then. Of course, it got even worse when we hit the 2015-2016 period when Donald Trump entered the national stage. And with Donald Trump, one way of thinking about what happened with Donald Trump is the previous administrations of George W. Bush and Barack Obama basically wanted to maintain the state's monopoly on violence. And so there was still a lot of state programs there. And the state would say things to the effect of, hey, we're still taking care of you. You don't have to worry about it. Namely, taking care of you by this extra prosecution of Arab and Muslim communities. Well, Donald Trump tried to, in fact, I think, bring the public hatred into his politics, instrumentalizing it through the bodies of Arabs and Muslims in this country. And then as we saw later on, not only, it, it was in fact of so many different communities. And that kind of corrosive politics is a legacy of our 9-11 era. I do want to say one thing though, because I don't want to just end on these. I'd rather relate to you a story that I was lucky enough to hear. Earlier this year, I had a small project of going and writing five very brief accounts of people's lives what they were like in that 9-11 period and after. And I was very fortunate to hear from one man in particular. His name is Rice Buyan. And uh, let me read, you may have heard of his, may have heard his story already, but I'm, I'm, if, I, if you'll indulge me just for two or three minutes, I'm gonna read you a, a very short summary of what happened to him uh, in the post immediately following 9-11. It starts in 1999. In 1999, 24-year-old Rice Buyan left a career in Bangladesh as an Air Force pilot and moved to America. From New York, he made his way to Dallas, Texas, jumping at a business opportunity while finishing his studies. He had a friend who was reopening an old gas station there and they began the venture together. His new life in America was beginning. The station opened in June, 2001, and Rice found he liked the work and his customers. Then came the 9-11 attacks. Anti-Muslim slurs were common, Four days later, a Pakistani man was murdered less than a kilometer from his work. And then on September 21, a man walked into Rice's gas station store, asked him his origin, and shot him with a shotgun. I felt it first, he said to me, like a million bees stinging my face. And then I heard the explosion. I looked down and I saw blood pouring like an open faucet from the right side of my head. His military training helped save his life, but he also lost so much. Vision in one eye, his job, his apartment, his fiancee back home ended things. With no health insurance, the medical bills piled up. 
What he never lost was his faith in God. On October 4th, a man working in a nearby gas station was killed by the same shooter. Police arrested him on October 5th. At trial, the shooter was found guilty and sentenced to death. His motive, he said, was to kill Arabs in revenge for 9-11. Incidentally, no one he shot was Arab. Rais slowly rebuilt his life, relying on the kindness of others. Performing the Hajj in 2009, he thought about his shooter, sitting on death row, waiting to die. Rais saw how revenge won't bring peace to any situation and began a global campaign to save the life of the man who shot him. In the end, the execution could not be prevented, but the two men spoke before his death. Later, the man's last words were, quote, hate is going on in this world and it has to stop. One second of hate will cause a lifetime of pain. Rice now runs his own NGO, his own non-governmental organization called A World Without Hate, centered on building empathy. Like him, it's a light illuminating our darkness. And I think Rice's story is so powerful, so important, and it's still something that I wanna hang on to. I think that there are ways that we can work collectively as a human race, think of each other for each other. And to that end, I wanna think of this day as a, as a day of opportunity, not just as a day for mourning and sadness. Thank you. Next, I want to introduce Asal Rad, who was a senior research fellow for the National Iranian American Council. Her writing can be seen in Newsweek, Independent, The National Interest, and Responsible Statecraft. She is a fierce advocate for peace uh, and also uh, an advocate against uh, incredibly destructive economic sanctions. Asal. Thank you so much for that introduction and, of course, for giving me this platform to join you all today. And what I really wanted to share today was sort of my experience as someone who was a teenager starting undergrad, right? Like a, a maybe a very particular kind of experience that for me, and I think a lot of Americans of my generation, 9-11 shaped not only the world around us, it literally shaped the way that the world has come about in the last 20 years, but it shaped our own views of that world. And it shaped our views of the US role in that world. And as someone who was in a position, the best position you could possibly be in if you wanted to learn at a university, uh, I really took that opportunity to try and understand, you know, try to understand the tragedy of that event. And when you started to learn about the history, when you started to learn about the history of Afghanistan, the history of the United States in intervening in other countries, U.S. militarism, that's when on top of what was already an incredibly devastating tragedy to watch unfold. On top of that, there was this new sort of layer of devastation. And that was the role that we actually played in bringing those events about. You know, when you learned about the fact that the U.S. trained and encouraged the jihadism that you saw transpire in 2001 in the 1980s in Afghanistan, when you saw the fact that the U.S. trained the very people who came later to attack us, and the reaction to those events, right? We use words like blowback and collateral damage and leverage. And those are all really great terms to mask war, devastation, mass slaughter, 
destruction. Those are the things that we mask by using things like collateral damage. Oh, well, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died. That's just the collateral damage of, of the war on terror. And the other interesting thing about being at that age at the time that it happened was to be in a position where you had, you know, I had older professors who had gone through their own experiences. And I had one professor uh, of sociology, his name was Chuck O'Connell, brilliant professor. And his area of expertise was Vietnam. And I'll never forget when uh, he formulated a class called the war on terror, right as we were, you know, right as these events were happening. And he described his own experience with the Vietnam War. And he said, you know, when the Vietnam War started, he went to college, he went to graduate school, he got a PhD, he got married, he had kids, the war was still going. And he warned us then, he said, what you're witnessing now, this will be your Vietnam. I don't want to say this to you, but you will experience the same thing. And now for me, 20 years later, that's exactly what happened. Right. Here was my professor 20 years ago, said these things to us. And, and, you know, I went through a very similar parallel experience as did, like I said, many of my generation. And I remember there was another professor at the university who said uh, before the sort of rhetoric and the buildup to the Iraq war started right after 9-11 was like, well, we're going to invade Iraq. And when I think back to those events, to those things that these uh, that my instructors had said, had, my instructors had said, it's not because they were psychic, right? It's not like they were fortune tellers. The fact that they could very easily describe what was going to transpire in decades ahead was because they had studied its history. They had studied the history of US interventionism. They had studied the history of these other wars. They had studied the history of the Middle East. And so they didn't, you know, it was predictable for, for those who were privy to that information. And so for me, it became so important to really learn everything I could to understand how we got to where we are, but not just because of some, you know, sort of academic exercise and wanting to understand, but how we can actually change it moving forward. And it was so unfortunate that the anti-war movement that was uh, inspired in the lead up to Iraq was not able to actually prevent that invasion from taking place. Um, the fact that our wars are not particularly popular wars, uh, the fact that the U.S. public, you know, poll after poll will show that we have no appetite for conflict, and yet we still find ourselves in them constantly. If anything, really questions our own democracy, right? The, the notion of a democracy is that, yes, you have a rep representative government uh, in, uh, in the United States, but the idea of a democracy is to carry out the will of its people. And administration after administration, Republican and Democrat will come in and use the catchphrases like, yes, ending endless war and fruitless war and all of that. And yet we repeat the exact same scenarios and the same mistakes. And so while I think it's an incredibly important step that the Biden administration did finally withdraw troops from Afghanistan, the reality of it is that is not the end of endless war. When you have 800 military bases around the world, when you spend $2 billion a day on the military, on wars, you're not ending endless war. You're just shifting things into different directions. The reality of it is until we have a real conversation, until we have an acknowledgement that our wars, you know, in, in recent weeks, obviously looking at what's happened in Afghanistan over the last several weeks has prompted um, these conversations even more beyond the anniversary that we're looking at today. The fact that we basically come full circle after 20 years, it's almost as if our presence there for 20 years made absolutely no difference. And 
this really requires us to reflect on how we got there. People keep talking about the failure in Afghanistan, the debacle of Afghanistan. But something to keep in mind is that it wasn't a failure for everybody. It wasn't a failure for the people who made lots and lots and lots of money, right? We talk about the cost of war. There have been presentations here that have talked about how many trillions of dollars have been spent. And, you know, you can talk about the fact that those resources, those U.S. tax dollars could have been spent on maybe Americans and, and doing things that were actually beneficial to our own population. And if we actually wanted to do something benevolent, something moral for the rest of the world, then we could have used those dollars for that as well. But instead, we use them to, to certainly not bring democracy. Right now, the Taliban has taken over Afghanistan. We didn't bring human rights. We didn't bring those things because the reality that we have to face is that that was never our intention. We never intended to bring peace and stability. We never intended to, to fulfill these promises that we talk about, these lofty promises that we always talk about. But the reality of it is we are mired in hypocrisy, right? We talk about a world-based order, an international rules-based order, and yet we violate those very rules and that very order. We talk about the fact that everybody has to be held accountable under, under international law, and yet we selectively hold people accountable. We sanction Iran into starvation under the guise of this idea of terrorism, and yet we arm with billions and billions of dollars of advanced and sophisticated arms Saudi Arabia to commit war crimes in Yemen. So there is a problem in the way that we are communicating things. Now, I don't want to say all of this to believe that we don't have hope. I've, I've, I always try to stay hope, hopefully optimistic. Um, and that is that we do have an alternative. The things that we say are great. It's just that we don't do them. If we actually upheld the idea of an international rules-based system, that would be great. That is anti-imperialism. Something that I always like to say is when people think anti-imperialism is some kind of, uh, you know, obscure idea, it is the rules-based order. Anti-imperialism is the idea that we should not have empires. It's the belief in sovereignty. It's the belief in borders and respecting them. It's the belief that we resolve issues without going to war. That's what anti-imperialism is. That's what we espouse, but we just don't do it. And as long as we use international institutions as tools of empire, they will never work. We are the most powerful country in the world. We are arguably the most powerful entity in human history. And so as Americans, we have a special role. People sometimes you know, will criticize me because like, well, why are you so critical of the United States? Well, number one, because it's my country, seems like a logical leap to be critical of your own government, especially when that government claims to be democratic and therefore has to answer to me and to all of us as citizens. But also on top of that, because there is no comparable power in the world. And so the role that we play, the role that we could play could be something positive, but we don't. The role that we play is war profiteering. The role that we play is to talk about this idea of ending endless wars and you know, holding a country like Iran accountable for a, a civilian nuclear program whilst we have thousands of nuclear weapons and plan to spend trillions of dollars to build more. These are the questions that we have to start asking ourselves. Why is this the way that we're spending our resources? Why do we continue to spend our resources in this way? This idea of never forget is incredibly important. We should never forget the victims of 9-11. The images of that day are seared into my mind just like they're seared into anyone's mind who was watching that day. And we should never forget that, but we should also never forget the other victims of the war on terror, 
across this world. If we believe in human rights, then there's no differentiation between a human life, whether it's an American life, whether it's an Iraqi life, whether it's an Afghan life, a human being is a human being. And so never forget should never have been a call for revenge. It should be a rallying cry to bring people together to fulfill the very promises that generations before us had when they created something like the United Nations in the wake of the devastation of World War II. Never forget has not been just used for 9-11, never forget has been used for other massive human tragedies. And so what we should be learning from that, which we should be taking from it, is how to avoid those tragedies, not worsen them by inflicting even more devastation on innocent populations, which unfortunately we have done. And while you know, this particular quote from President Biden has been thrown around a lot when he said, nothing will fundamentally change, maybe something should. Thank you so much, Saul. Thank you. Get your bags together. Go and bring your friends too. Because it's getting nearer. It soon will be with you. This is the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We continue our theme this month, looking back 20 years toward the September 11th events of 2001. We're listening to excerpts from an online seminar presented by Code Pink, Massachusetts Peace Action, Project Censored, and other organizations. Special thanks to Rachel Brunka, Emily and Frank Dorrell, and others. This event was held on September 11th this year, exactly 20 years after the September 11th attacks. Stay tuned as we continue. Kevin Danaher is going to be our next speaker. He is an American author and activist, and he is the co-founder of Global Exchange. He's the founder and executive co-producer of Green Festivals, and he is executive director of the Global Citizen Center. Kevin. I think we need to understand that the roots of this go very, very deep. This country was founded on genocide and slavery. If you look at the historical roots of the Second Amendment, it's not about the right to own guns. It's the need for a well-regulated militia. And the reason that a well-regulated state militia was needed was for two reasons, to kill Native Americans and to return escaped slaves. You need to understand your own history. Look at the, the whole notion of roots. The fact that I went to Ireland and saw the home where my father grew up and heard from him the stories of what it was like growing up in Ireland under British military occupation, where he had to hide in a church basement to study his own language, Gaelic, Irish. So we need to bring up our children with an understanding of, yes, this is an ugly history, but we need to embrace it. This is a cleansing therapeutic process. And part of that, something that really ticks me off, is whenever I raise the issues of Building 7, Building 7 at World Trade Center falling in six seconds. It's a 47-story building. That's like the Transamerica Tower in San Francisco. 47 stories, and it comes down in six seconds. And no plane hit it. There was no major physical damage to it. 
the 2004 official report of 9-11 didn't even mention Building 7, and it's never been explained to this date. And then look at the tenants of Building 7. It was the Pentagon for New York, the CIA for New York, the FBI for New York, Giuliani's Disaster Control Center. No terrorist could get into that building to plant explosives. You and I couldn't get into that building to plant explosives. But when you raise this, when you say to people, steel buildings don't melt, they never have and they never will. Just the other night, I raised it and some young guys, they go, oh, oh, don't go there. We're not allowed to question the official story that was used to incur all of this horror and destruction and waste of resources and trauma on so many people around the world. If we are going to bring down the U.S. empire, we need to be assertive and we need to be honest. I want to pitch people on an idea. It turns out there's quite a bit of green economy within the U.S. military. They're doing solar energy. They're doing biofuels. They're doing all sorts of what we would qualify as green technology. Imagine if the over 800 U.S. military bases around the world were eco-universities, were platforms like the Green Festival for generating green economy enterprises and green economy jobs. Then we would be liked around the world. We would be loved and we would be embraced. What we have seen in Afghanistan and we saw in Iraq and Yemen and Syria and all these other places is Violence doesn't work. War doesn't work. If it worked, we would have had peace by now. It doesn't work. And one of the other things people need to look at in terms of the official story is September 10th. You can Google this on YouTube. September 10th, there was a Pentagon briefing where Rumsfeld and the comptroller of the Pentagon admitted that there was over $2 trillion missing from Pentagon budgets. And the next day, boom, September 11th, all the violence, and all that got wiped off the headlines. It was never a headline. Well, let's go look at that. Why isn't there ever been an audit of the Pentagon? The Pentagon brought in official auditors, auditing companies, and when they looked at the Pentagon books, they said, we can't even do an audit based on these books. It's such a mess. So this is our tax money being used against our will. We were never asked. And it's being used to do violence against poor people around the world. And God help us if we don't have the courage to look at these facts and call for an official investigation. Let's investigate. How did Building 7 come down in six seconds? That's free fall speed, a 47-story steel building. And who were the tenants? And why is there video of people saying, get back, get back, this building's coming down? A BBC reporter reporting that Building 7 collapsed and the building is still behind her. A press release was sent out in advance that they knew the building was going to come down. All of that needs to be made public so that we find out who really was involved, totally who was involved. Yeah, there may have been some amateur terrorists from the Middle East, but there may have been some professional terrorists based right here on our own soil. Thank you for your attention. 
Next up, uh, I want to introduce Ray McGovern, who is an activist uh, who writes and lectures about war and the role of the Central Intelligence Agency. He's a former intelligence officer himself who worked as a CIA analyst for 27 years. Uh, in 2003, he co-founded Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Thanks for being with us, Ray. Let me start by, uh, by mentioning three conspiracy theories in which I believe. Now, the first one is by the heads, the chairs of the 9-11 Commission. And what they said here was that they were set up to fail. They wrote a book, a book, two years after the 9-11 Commission produced their book. And they said that we were set up to fail. We were aware that the commission would be doomed to fail, if not actually designed to fail. I believe that. It's odd to attribute a conspiracy theory to the co-chairman of, of the commission, but, but I think it fits. Now, the second one would be, uh, I have the 9-11 commission report here. And uh, you know, when they caught Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, they said, why'd you do it? And here's what they said in the commission report. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's animus toward the United States stemmed not from his experiences at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. It wasn't like they called him a towel head, but rather from his violent disagreement with U.S. foreign policy favoring Israel, favoring Israel. The little footnote there says, you know, that's what Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's nephew said when he tried to knock down the Twin Towers in 1993. He said he was really proud to be sentenced to many years in prison because of his deep hatred for U.S. policy favoring Israel. So Samuel Arion was quite right. And the, the reasons, the real reasons for 9-11, they're the right ones. The third conspiracy theory that I believe has to do with the New York Times today. Believe it or not, front page, here's the headline, evidence disputes U.S. claim of ISIS bomb in Kabul drone strike. Is the New York Times saying that our top military lies to its teeth? That suggests that they are, okay? So there's a conspiracy theory in the, which the New York Times is, is participating. I think September 11 and its sequels and its wars beckon us to a national examination of conscience. Why is it? Why is it so easy? For us to kill people who don't look like us. Let's face it, racism is a major issue here. I think we have to recognize the racism that underlies a lot of what we do abroad. We can recall the words of General William Westmoreland after the carnage in Vietnam saying to a, a interviewer, you know, the Oriental, they don't put the same price on life Life is cheap in the Orient. Well, is life cheap in Afghanistan? I think first we have to recognize that we're all, all responsible, even though we're not all guilty, okay? We have tried to prevent all this for over 20 years now. We have to keep trying. And the first thing I think we need to do is bind up the wounds and welcome, in the biblical sense, the poor, the refugee, the orphan, and the widow. And how can we do that right now? Well, after Vietnam, there were 3 million 
refugees from Indochina. There were another half million that perished at sea. We took in a million. We have to do the same thing now. We owe it to the people who cooperated with us, who are now in danger because of their cooperation to do the right thing. And Biden, to his credit, has tried to make sure that we are prepared to do that. It's going to take a monumental effort and there will be a lot of resistance to it. But that's one thing we can do. Stay true uh, to the justice aspects of this, because, you know, if we want peace in the biblical sense, peace is no more nor less than the experience of justice. Thank you very much. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Unthinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised under the guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured paid for by taxing while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, those are capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out to reach all potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that love of the brothers in us.